0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Okay, I'm glad you're here. The question is, we have many economic systems, capitalism, communism, socialism, but what's God's economic system? We have one. We actually have the answer to that in the Torah and it's called Shemitah and Yovel. So let's just step through that a little bit and see this extraordinary vision that God has in terms of creating a society based on this incredible utopian divine economic plan. Okay, so what is Shemitah? So every seven years, remember, in Israel, the basic economic structure was agricultural. So people were tied to pieces of property and and farming, and much of society really revolved around that mode of living. Now, when the Jews left Egypt and they entered into Israel, every single person got a piece of land in Israel, and that was your property. So what is Shemitah? Shemitah means that you'd work the land for six years, and the seventh year would be like Shabbos, just like the seventh day is Shabbos in time, you'd actually have Shabbos in the dimension of space. And anyone could come and collect fruit from your land, animals, people, anybody. Even you could collect, but you couldn't harvest. No one could harvest, no one could bring a basket into it, but it would just grow wild. And years later, we realized that if you work the land, Um, All the time, all the nutrients in the soil become exhausted and then the land stops becoming productive. So just on a nuts and bolts level, we see that that the idea of letting the land rest once every seven years was incredibly redemptive, but also for the soul was incredibly redemptive. And this, by the way, is where the word sabbatical comes from. You can hear the word Sabbath in it and so academia adapted that word that that every once in a while you'd get a year off so this is where it comes from etymologically believe it or not but let's let's go a little bit deeper i don't know a lot of latin but i do know this phrase terra firma terra firma means firm land like that's you know you're standing on it there's nothing more real than the land that you're standing on with your own two feet well God comes and says, you know, that's mine too. (laughs) Even the land that you're standing on. In other words, you can say, well, I don't own a thing in the world, but at least I own this land I'm standing on. Now, Now, just like take this seriously, what I'm saying to you for a moment, because I'm not just talking about property owners right now. I'm talking about a consciousness. You see... Imagine you're standing online at the supermarket or at Starbucks or whatever it is, and someone cuts the line, and you go, Hey, that's my spot, right? Like the land I was standing on. You don't you don't own that Starbucks, right? But there's just this presumptiveness, the way our brains are hardwired to think that at least where I'm standing is mine. Right? But what if even where you're standing isn't yours. So do you understand how far-reaching this idea of God saying that everything is mine, the land is mine? So if everything is God, then nothing is mine. But now listen to this. If absolutely nothing belongs to me, then everything belongs to me. Now, I have to explain that a bit because I'm talking about I'm talking about a way of approaching life and a way of looking at the world you see we have this uh, mentality which is that to the extent that I own something then that thing is mine so for a lot of people the world is a very limited experience because I haven't got much so I can't really explore much of the world because the world is only mine to the extent that I have a certain level of ownership, right? If if I don't have a country house in the Hamptons, well then the Hamptons isn't mine, but guess what? You can just get on a train and go to the Hamptons. You know, the great art treasures are yours. I saw an, an Andy Warhol painting, just went for $200 million, right? That's the new highest price ever paid for an American painting, $200 million, right? You know, you can walk into a museum, m- most museums, for free. And there are literally billions of dollars of art right there at your fingertips. Billions of dollars of art right there, right for you. In other words, you don't have to own a single thing for it to be yours. So, so God says, I'm going to sever this notion that the world is yours only to the extent that you have ownership in it. And I'm going to show you that the only thing that exists is me, not just in terms of the ultimate reality, but in terms of the concrete reality, because every seventh year, the land becomes mine. And you realize, oh, well, what am I going to do during that seventh year? Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna farm the land. Well that's how I make my living. That's how I spend my time during the the rest of my life, farming the land, planting the land, tilling the land, all the all the rest. Now all of a sudden I'm gonna realize that I'm more than my job. I'm gonna realize that this world is more than just making a buck. And I'm gonna be free to explore it. And so that's what I mean. When God says, it all belongs to me, when you have nothing, now all of a sudden you have everything. Because now all of a sudden, all the opportunities that the world offers are there for you to explore. And of course, the greatest realization of that is the 50th year. So the amazing thing here is that every 50th year, all of the land went back to its original owners. And even the slave who loved his master and said, even though this seven-year period is up for my indentured servitude, I love you so much, I want to continue to serve you. And the line in the Torah is actually, it's actually a very confusing line in the Torah because it says that, that if a slave says that, that he loves his master and wants to continue to serve him past that seven-year period, that he will serve him forever. Well, guess what? Even that slave who said, I want to serve you forever, he went free in the 50th of the year. In other words, God pressed this giant reset button and everyone went back to where they were before. Where all the property returns back to God. And all the slaves go free. And the Ishbitzer Rebbe says something amazing. He says that in Pirke Avos, it says what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours, right? That's part of the Mishnah there. It's a fuller Mishnah, but he's zeroing in on those two phrases. And he says Shmita, the seventh year, is, correlates with what's mine is yours. In other words, this land, you know, legally anyway, belongs to me but in the 7th year i say what's mine is yours god but when i get to the level of the 50th now remember the 50 in 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 torah thought stands for the highest reaches of heaven remember we are going to receive the torah on the 50th day this the shar chamishim the 50th gate that's the highest reaches of heaven so the 50th year we say what's yours is yours in other words there's this we've evolved toward this consciousness over the seven cycles of Shemitah to understand that even to say that anything belongs to me is a level of presumptuous that i'm not holding by anymore and i understand deep deep down god what's yours is yours and then all of a sudden that that reality becomes manifest in the world now let's think about that for a moment because ask yourself if America or the world today were like that what how would it affect the decisions that you would make Remind, rem, remember this is the divine utopian economic system we came up with socialism capitalism communism right but what's god's economic plan this is god's economic plan let's know let's listen to how the The dominoes fall, so to speak, in terms of the impact living like this has. Well, we already touched on some of the ideas, but now I want to go a little bit deeper. You see. So many of us give up in life. We get frustrated. We have so many setbacks. We hit so many walls. And we just, we go, what's the use? What's the use? I'm just giving up. So imagine someone, not only they've sold their ancestral land, but times have gotten so tough they've had to sell themselves into indentured servitude. And then all of a sudden, when that 50-year yovel period rolls around, and depending on when you're born, that could be when you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, could happen anywhere during your life, right? All of a sudden you get your land back. All of a sudden and all of a the sudden there's hope again. Now let's look at it the other way, okay? Imagine someone's doing great. They're rolling so to speak, they're The money's coming in and all these properties are suddenly popping up. They're for sale. They're available. And this person is gobbling them up and taking advantage of all these economic opportunities that are presenting themselves. And the person builds up a a real estate empire or an agricultural empire. And it's fantastic. But now listen to this. At the end of 50 years, they give it all back and they just return to what they had from the very beginning. Now again, imagine you're living through that and you're watching that happen all around you. All the people are getting their land back who had nothing and all the people who acquired great wealth are like shedding it, are returning back to where they started. So what message is that going to send you? Again, maybe you're in your teens, maybe you're even younger than that. Maybe you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. Well, I'll just speak for myself. It would say to me, well, you know, if you're gonna give it all back anyway, maybe there's more to life that I should be focusing on other than the acquisition of wealth, because it's not going to stay with me anyway. Now, I just want to tell you, just again, I've been using this phrase, this utopian economics, right? And I I really want to emphasize that point, because you see, Torah says, and and it's a, a known idea throughout the world, the way it's usually expressed is there's no, there are no pockets in shrouds. Right, a shroud is something that a, a body, before it gets uh, buried, right, gets put in. And so, wh- why don't shrouds have pockets? And you know, it's said humorously, but but truthfully, because you can't take it with you. In other words, what are you going to put in your pockets? <laughs> like, what are you taking with you exactly? You know, the only thing that we take with us are our mitzvot. <laughs> are the beautiful things that we put into the world. Now, that's true, but it's abstract. Because you live your life thinking, well, you know, still got all my stuff. (laughs) Like, till your last breath, you're looking around you, still got all my stuff, and then, okay, don't have any of my stuff anymore. Okay, so very good, but it's too late at that moment. But now, imagine the following that it actually happens before your eyes, during your lifetime, when you can actually make very intelligent, conscious choices about it. Do, Do you hear the difference? Do you hear how utopian that is? Do you hear how God is giving us a second chance during our lifetimes to refocus on that which is important? On that which lasts forever? Now, I want to go deeper because the Yishpitzer Rebbe raises a very interesting point. He says, well, if, if the ultimate consciousness is what's yours is yours, in other words, that everything belongs to God, and that in our own lifetimes, we, even if we succeed wildly acquiring all these tracts of lands, if they all return back to their original owners, then, then why should I try it all? Or on the other side, if I'm just ultimately going to get my land back anyway, then why should I work at all? So that's not the way to go either. And he says something which I I, I thought was very, very striking. You know, if you acquire these various tracts of land, while the borders go back to where they were originally, all the beautifications and development of the land itself remain. In other words, if you, just to give, you know, a very obvious example, if you planted groves and groves... you don't uproot those groves. You don't chop those trees down and make the land look the way it was before you beautified it and developed it, right? You profited from all of those improvements that you made. So you're, you're not losing anything by for it to remain. But economics aside, just think of the deeper point here. All of the beautifications that you created... All those expressions of your effort and yourself remain. So, this sort of very nihilistic philosophy that, oh, what difference does it make? It's all going back to where it was before, isn't really true. Because the beauty that you imparted remains. And it reminds me, it's not exactly on the topic, but on the topic of, of a story that happened to me. I was a, w- one of the four chuppah holders at a, a dear friend's wedding. And he, he gave us each a, a prayer book with our, our name on it. And, and I used it every day for years and years and years and years afterwards. And toward the end of my mother's life, I was traveling from Los Angeles to New York and on one of those trips back and forth, I, I left this prayer book, which was very special to me, on the plane on that little pouch in front of the chair. And somehow, I don't know why I thought this. It's not, you know, technically a rational thought. But somehow, I, I didn't question that I was going to get it back. And the, my logic, again, may, may, may seem a little bit strange. If you can even call it logic, but my logic was that I put so much of my neshama into that, into those pages, because I was holding that prayer book for years and years while while I was davening. That there was so much of myself in that prayer book that that it that it would come back to me. So, so one year later. One year later, after I've left it on the airplane, I'm in shul, and someone comes up to me and says, is, is your name David Sachs? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, my wife found your prayer book on the airplane. We've been meaning to give it back to you. Here, Wait right here, I'm gonna go home and get it right now so I don't forget. So isn't that something? In, in other words, I'm reminded of that story because the idea that what we put into this world remains and to say that well it all goes back to what it was isn't isn't really the case isn't really the case and and to think that is an example of what what I would call downside of being too spiritual you see Spirituality is very important because there's, there's more to the world than we can see with our eyes. So, so if you want to actually live in the actual world itself, the, 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 the actual world itself, you have, to, you have to acknowledge that there's dimensions that can be seen with the eye and, and dimensions that are 100% there, 10,000% there, but they just can't be seen with the eye. So having a spiritual outlook allows you actually to live in reality and is actually a more realistic way to go through life. But then you can get too spiritual. What does that mean? Well, you you would say, well, how can you ever be too spiritual? You absolutely can get too spiritual. So this is an example of being too spiritual to say, well, if everything just returns back to God in the end, then, then what am I working for? So, so that's that's incorrect. That's actually incorrect, because every mitzvah that we that we perform, every bit of love that we put out into the world, every every effort that we make, actually beautifies the world. And that's a real thing. And that remains, and that's from us. So. So it's true, some things we don't hold on to, that is the material realm, that is our possessions. But there are other things that we very much hold on to. And that's all the beauty, all the beauty that we've imparted into the world. Now there's a classic, classic story that illustrates this point, I think, in a, in a wonderful way. And And let me just share it with you, okay? So the story is times are tough for this person and they have to, you know, just figure something out. And, and there's, there's a, like a legend that, that there's this island where basically it's just just covered with wealth. And if you can make it to that island, you know, you can harvest that wealth and bring it back. And it's, it's an incredible thing. So this person decides that he's he's going to look for this place. He's going to try to go for it. And he, he gets into this ship, and it's a very, very long journey. And they land on this island, and it is covered with diamonds, like mounds of diamonds, wherever you look, piles and hills of just diamonds. And he can't believe it. He's actually found this place. This is incredible. Well, you know, you can imagine it's been a very long journey. He's very hungry. He, he sees there's a restaurant there. He goes to to order. He has a meal, and the, the check comes, and he scoops up some diamonds off the ground, and you know tries to pay it with them. And the the person says, "What are you what are you joking? You're, you're trying to you're trying to pay with those things? That those are worthless here." And the person's like shocked and he says, Well well then what am I gonna do? I don't have any money. He says, Well you're gonna work, that's what you're gonna do. So the person puts him to work in the kitchen and he says, Well, what is of value here? Like, you know and and they say chicken fat, right? Chicken schmaltz. that, that that's what we value here. And so the person goes, okay. So he pays him with some chicken schmaltz, and and anyway, the the person realizes that he, he can't like just sleep on the ground. He's going to have to get a place to live, and that's going to cost money, and that means he's going to have to continue to work. And so it, it sends him into this whole life cycle, and and over time, over the years, he's starting to save, and after a period, he's actually got a fair amount of chicken schmaltz, chicken fat to show for himself. And in time he realizes, you know, I, 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 I've done well for myself. I've got a lot of chicken fat. You know, it's time to return to my family. And he arrives back and, and the people see him and they're so happy. And they say, how did it go? And he says, how did it go? I'm rich. And, and the person, said, they, they say, fantastic. And, and he says, look, look. And he shows them vats of chicken fat. And they go, oh, my goodness, he's lost his mind. He lost his mind. So that's the story of us in this world. You know, we are absolutely everywhere we look are diamonds. Everywhere we look are opportunities to do mitzvot. Every day is another day that we can be helping another person, putting more love into the world, putting on talas and and lighting Shabbos candles, keeping Shabbos. There's so many ways that we can give tzedakah to to just like uplift each other and to serve God in so many beautiful ways. And these are diamonds. These are gonna last absolutely forever. But we go native, so to speak, right? We get into this consciousness of this world And this world brainwashes us into thinking that we're here to go for the true value, which is chicken fat. And can you imagine after 120, we stand before the heavenly court and they say, what have you got? And we say, look at all this chicken fat. Right. And they just go, ah, he lost himself. She lost herself. So, so this is. An amazing parsha, divine utopian economics, right? We don't have this economic system today, but we have all the lessons, all the enduring lessons that it gives us to remember what's of true value in this world and what we should be spending our time pursuing.